0: Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by a guest that I've been working almost two years on the podcast. I'm just so excited to have Patrick Campbell, the founder and CEO of ProfitWell, now part of Paddle as our guest today. We'll be covering three main topics with Patrick because he's such a pioneer in this. Number one, the strategic inflection point leading to Patrick building a brand media entity inside of ProfitWell. Second, the insights to building a successful media asset inside a SaaS company, and third, the metrics that informed the return on that brand media investment as a content marketing strategy. So with that, Patrick, please take a moment to give a brief overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Ray, especially with that introduction. Now I feel I got to live up to it. So I appreciate the kind words. Yeah. So quick background on me, my background's in econometrics and math, which means I'm a really great party guest, you know, really, 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 really good with spreadsheets here and there. But uh, started my career, worked in US intelligence in DC, then I worked at Google and then jumped into the kind of the the startup world um, by founding ProfitWell. Uh, and ProfitWell, we exist um, or we existed, I guess, because technically we got bought by Paddle. So maybe I should say Paddle. We we exist to run and grow subscription companies automatically. So you can kind of plug it in, you know, and we take care of all of your billing, your currencies, your taxes, your churn, everything just automatically. And what we're we're kind of really well known through the ProfitWell acquisition, which I you know founded and led as a bootstrap founder for nine years. Was um, our content, which it sounds like we're gonna talk about today. And then also, um, we were freemium with our metrics products. So we had about 37,000 companies now, subscription and SaaS companies. Ah, uh, using our free financial metrics tool, um, which was really, really influential on our success in a whole battery of ways. But yeah, that's 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 my background. I, I started the company in Boston, opened our sales office in Utah, and lived out there for a while. And now I'm in sunny Puerto Rico, living the post exit life, which is busier than the the pre exit life. So it's it's interesting how those things work out. San Juan, where the sun is fun. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to have an 80, 80 degrees here every single day. Every day, it's 80 degrees. Well, so, yeah, it's interesting. Well, Patrick, you, you're you a little self-effacing
0: by saying, you know, being a you know, mathematician, econometrics background, you don't get invited to parties. But my wife is a double ma- engineering major at MIT. My son's a data scientist, and I'm a benchmarks geek. So you would be invited to any of my parties. That's amazing.
1: That's an amazing party. Holy cow. You guys must have fascinating conversations. We may find them
0: fascinating, but some of our guests don't. But yeah. I was listening to one of your videos because you have so many media assets, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But you were talking about why you decided to build a brand media entity within ProfitWell. And you brought up some interesting competitive kind of industry data points. There was a fit, over 15x increase in the number of competitors over a few years ago. Customer acquisition cost is up 128%. The team tenure is down 35% tech wages are up 27%. Hmm. So how did this all this data inform your decision to make the high risk decision to build a media strategy within a SaaS company?
1: Yeah, it's a good it's a good question and to kind of unpack it I think you need to take a step back about like what is your goal as a company is it's to grow, right? It doesn't matter if you're bootstrapped, well funded, whatever it is. I guess if you're Trying to create like a lifestyle business, you don't really you care about growth, but not as much as if you're trying to build a big business. And so we faced eight years ago the same problem that every other company faces, which is like, how do you grow? How do you grow efficiently? And I think that what a lot of us miss as companies is one, what are the macroeconomic trends that are happening in our our sphere? And then also, what are the things we're going to do to get an outsized impact, you know, on growth? Because if we do everything that everyone else is doing, we're going to get very similar results and at best, and let alone probably worse results because you know, the circumstances are different. So with those two things in mind, the first thing is the macroeconomic environment. And you kind of teed me up for that with some of the data that, that we published. What we found, and this is something that's facing all of us you know, in our businesses, is that you know, when you were building a product in the early 2000s, it, was, it wasn't easy to build, but it was easy to market because you had the internet basically opening up these new marketing and sales channels every single quarter. You had, you know, email marketing with 98% open rates. You had Google AdWords at a penny a click. You had, you know, remarketing open up, then Facebook, then LinkedIn and all these other channels. And what's happened in the past like 5 to 8 years has basically been We've lost a lot of those new channels, not because they've gone away, but because everyone's using them now. Everyone's got Facebook ads, everyone's got, you know, a sales channel, everyone's got email marketing, outbound sales. And we haven't had a brand new marketing channel since 2015. And that was Snapchat, which really isn't applicable to B2B. And then now we have TikTok, which, you know, maybe these are B2B, but they're B2B supplemental, right? So this is why we're all reinventing channels. This is like ABM. ABM is like, great outbound sales, right? great targeted sales of 10 years ago, but now we have a system and tools and all these other things. So the reason I bring that up is because since 2012, the number of competitors has increased 16X. It has caused CAC to go up by 130%, as you stated, and you know, team 10 years down because there's a lot more job mobility. And so the market that we're in is really, really hard, and you can do a lot of these me too type of tactics and strategies but you need to find where the leverage is. So for us being a bootstrap company, which is even worse if you're trying to build a big company because you don't have as many resources. What I started noticing is that content did really well for us because we talked about things like pricing and churn, which didn't get all the play. Like all the sales and marketing products, there's so much content out there about sales and marketing. For us, there wasn't a lot out there about pricing. There wasn't a lot out there about retention. And then even metrics. So we just started publishing, and we would get this outsized impact based on the effort because of the topic that we were talking about. And it was just me publishing content once a week, then twice a week. Then we had some contractors help us write. But then it was like, well, I'm going to hire a marketing team. Like, how am I going to build that out? Well, what's your strategy be? And so this is where to kind of finally get to the end of this, you know, the beginning of this journey. I did a bunch of research. And I started realizing that the average B2B blog, like an inbound marketing strategy that HubSpot made popular, you, know, you can expect on a really good day, 1.6 touches per week from a qualified lead. But when you looked at media companies, Bloomberg, you know, the skim, which became really popular over the past 10 years, their average on a really good day was above five. So five touches per week. And so the the really there's a bunch of other data, but the TLDR of this strategy was like, okay, PAC is going up for inbound marketing because it's becoming SEO basically in ebooks, which is great. And then all of a sudden you have this environment where, you know, media companies are really, really good at driving traffic. They're terrible at monetizing it. Software companies are amazing at monetizing it. What if we started combining these things, right? And we would get better CAC implications relative to the lifetime value that we could get. And then we started looking at the costs, and we realized, like, a thirteen episode video series costed the same amount of money basically as creating a good ebook. So all of this started to converge, and that's what led us to, like, well, let's try what let's try creating a media property. It's it's creating shows, creating podcasts, creating episodic content that keeps people in the middle of the funnel, unlike an ebook, because most ebooks, their only purpose is to get signal from the top of the funnel where a lot of money is spent to the bottom of the funnel where a lot of money is spent in sales. But if we could create a pool of users through media content that people are consuming on a a week by week basis, that pool will be able to be like fished from in terms of prospects when it came time for them to, to want a product like ours. And when we combine that with the Freemium product strategy, that's when things really, really took off. And so that was kind of the, you know, the the year of thinking, um, all boiled down to hopefully a couple of minutes there that was coherent as to why we started attacking a media strategy around five, five, six years ago rather than just doing traditional inbound marketing.
0: So let's double-click on that a little bit because. One of the things that I found amazing about what you did was it wasn't a single threaded or even two or three threads of media assets. You had seven eight I think at one time, maybe nine different shows that you were doing, you know protect the hustle, et cetera and then you mentioned in your one of your videos about people aren't targeting buyer personas. one in five companies actually have a persona slash you know iCP strategy so here's my question is one I face. And a lot of CMOs I talk to are thinking about a podcast. Do they do a separate media asset for the CFO buyer persona versus the CRO buyer persona? Is that why you had yeah. so many? Or do you try to make one like metrics and measure up? I'm trying to get to founders, CEOs, CFOs, and CROs. What's the right strategy?
1: Yeah. So let me take a step back and just define success a little bit because I think a lot of people, when they think of podcasts or they think of like a show, they think, oh, if it doesn't have millions of views like my kids' YouTube creator that they like, it's failure, right? But if I recontextualize this and I told you, what if you had a webinar where 500 people showed up every single week and they were perfectly in your target demographic, right? VPs of finance, VPs of product, directors of whatever. We would be like, high and around the office, right? We'd be like, holy cow, they're showing up every single week and a couple of them every week like inquire about sales or whatever. And so that's where success looks like. So to answer your question, I think that then it becomes like, once we know what that, that is success, like 500, 1,000 VPs of whatever is successful, now it becomes a game of like, well, what are those groups of 500 to 1,000 that we're looking for or 10,000 or 100,000, depending on the, what market you're in. And so for us the way that we thought about this was having shows based on the problem that we were targeting. So the problem we were solving, like pricing or retention or something like that, or the role that we were targeting. And we had a little grid where it was basically like, for the verticals that we were targeting and the kind of problem we wanted, um, one of those being targeting a role that we really cared about, we wanted to show in every single cross section of that grid. So we had Pricing Page Teardown, which is a show where I and one of my co-hosts basically will go through pricing pages and give suggestions on what they're doing well and not so well. That show was getting tens of thousands of views per episode um, at its height, right? And the reason is because, yeah, we have some people who care about pricing in general, but a lot of people were like, oh, this is something that I need to solve in my business. This is a problem. Let me like learn a little bit through watching the show, but then we had Protect the Hustle, which was more of a top of the funnel show. It was more like just inter- kind of like this show. You're like interviewing interesting people, but interesting to your audience that, that you care about. And that was kind of an interview show with like different interesting people and learning. So it really came down to having that cross section and then not being you know afraid to kind of kill your darlings and measure success. Right? Like we had a show that you know it just didn't take off. It was too too costly to kind of produce, and we didn't have the right talent to do it. And so we weren't getting the results. So we killed it, right? And that's, you know, you, you you kill content programs all the time. Like it's okay. And I recommend people start with one. I think if you have a very charismatic host or someone who can like really extract good content, which I think you have done just based on how good your questions are. If you have that, like doing an interview show works really, really well. If you don't have that type of person doing something's a little scripted, maybe talking to your customers about the 10 things each week they need to know about X and interviewing a new person. It's like very well-structured. That really much helps. But again, like if you're listening to this, like Ray and team literally have you, you know, interacting with their brand and associating me and them with you and all these other things. And, you know, it, it pays off in the long run, even though it's not as, you know, oftentimes measurable as like, oh, someone downloaded this ebook and stuff like that.
0: Okay. Now I have a perspective on this, but I'm going to ask you because a lot of people out there thinking, Hey, do we start a podcast or do we start a video kind of YouTube
1: channel audio or video or both? Where do you start? I think, I think whatever you're most comfortable with, I think audio is the easiest thing to start with. Like, you know, this is audio only, but you and I are looking at each other on a camera just because it's, it keeps the interactive and kind of the conversation going. And so you know, I think that's, that's the easiest because there's not as much editing. I think video, it, it gets better response because people like to watch and listen, um, or they can choose to watch or listen, depending on the thing that you're talking about, but it is a higher level of complexity. So if you're going all in, start with something video or like, you know, Ray, what you can do is literally just start with this video, you know, record the video and then chop up some clips and stuff like that and release it as a video or audio. But yeah, I think keep it simple. If you've never done this before, just start interviewing customers or something like that and kind of let it build from there.
0: Yeah, And I've been amazed, Patrick, we've got five different media assets and two are video and three are audio only. And I started with Zoom, right? You can actually yeah. use Zoom to do like we do Monday night totally. metrics with the SaaS CFO. It worked fine for the first year or two. It really did. It was low cost. But now we're going to pivot to something that I love and I think you love, and that's benchmarking. Right. Nice. The first time I actually heard of profit well was looking at your benchmarking index. You had it broken up with you know direct to consumer, B two B. So my question is, why did benchmarks become such a critical part of your content and brand strategy? And was it really a a Product led growth motion to get people to interact with your product, or was it different?
1: Yeah. So, the, the benchmarks feature, or the free product in general, or both, I the guess. Benchmarks
0: feature, because people had to hook up their yep. subscription billing system to give you the data.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So, I think benchmarks and I have a very tricky relationship. Uh, and the reason I say that is because I think you'll appreciate this one given your family and, and you and your product as well. I think most people don't use benchmarks correctly. Like benchmarks are an inform, like, and I think benchmarks get weaponized a lot because if if you're truly giving benchmarks like that are real, you'll notice there's like a good amount of variance in them and stuff like that. But I think a lot of people, like for example, there's a this is gonna sound negative. I don't mean it negative at all. There's like a famous SaaS survey that goes out, and then that survey gets you know presented in the data, like, you know, what's your churn rate? What's all this kind of stuff? I know that people lie. On that form, because I've seen, like, I have, I have the actual data. It's not survey data. The churn is off by like thirty percent. I also, and part of that's because there's like a few hundred responses versus thirty-seven thousand, you know, actual company data points. So I think it's like one of those things where I, I think benchmarks make people feel feel good, but they don't necessarily get used really properly. Now, let me get off my soapbox for a second. I think that benchmarks are really powerful because they allow you to kind of understand where you need to look. So, one of the most powerful things I think our benchmarks did was we were able to show you here's what your churn looks like relative to companies of similar ARPU or similar LTV or similar size or similar country or similar whatever. And you could say, okay, I see my churn, I see my expansion revenue, I see all these different data points, and then I can realize oh, we're actually really good relative to the rest of our cohort at churn. We shouldn't focus on getting less churn. We got to focus on more expansion revenue. And that's kind of how you should use benchmarks. Like, are we super far off? And therefore, if we are, that's the thing we should work on. It's almost for prioritization. But I think so many people look at like benchmarks to kind of justify it. But in terms of like how we use them, I think that we took advantage in a well-intentioned way of the way people think about benchmarks. People love it, Right. Like for example, I just mentioned, hey, you're looking for a podcast to be like a really consistent webinar with 500 people. That anecdote, which there's no benchmark there, but that anecdote has been used to justify so many podcasts. Like I've heard people say, like, oh, I convinced my boss of this based on that, right? And I think that that's that's where benchmarks they like they fill this like anxiety kind of brain part of our brain. To give a better example, I've been rambling to get to this example, I guess is. When COVID hit, we started releasing this index. And this index was basically like, here's the growth or lack thereof of B2B SaaS, subscription e-commerce, et cetera, in the context of COVID, because everyone had anxiety. And this was one of the most successful kind of marketing campaigns that we had. Because everyone had anxiety. And same thing with the recession right now. Um, Everyone's like worried. So we're giving a lot of that data. So is it 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 was definitely a product like growth like hack, but I also think it taps into like reducing anxiety. And whenever you can create content, or I would argue, product that relieves anxiety, you're gonna do pretty well in your market uh, because people will look at it. And then you kind of have to, you know, I think be a good steward of data and kind of explain like, I'll get people who use it and try to justify things. I'm like, well, it's not exactly what the data says. The data kind of says this or that, and this is how I would make a decision in the context of this. But uh, yeah, I think that answers your question. I might have just went too soapboxy there, but uh, no, yeah, I so like it. That. So
0: what you did, you know, we always talk about dogs eating the dog food. Your benchmarks help people kind of deal with some anxieties, like, well, how am I doing against the, my competitors and my cohort? And you helped kind of either reduce the anxiety, indoor or provided rationale for certain investments or certain areas of focus
1: right totally, totally.
0: now we're going to just go a little bit nearer, Jason, and that is the freemium product you introduced was that kind of an afterthought or kind of what stimulated going to that freemium product
1: yeah not an afterthought at all we we had a pricing software service product and then for a lot of reasons that aren't really like relevant to the podcast i think we were like we need wider data um, to kind of feed our algorithms. And so we we thought, well, we needed that. We also noticed that there was this need for like subscription financial metrics. Because before this, if you wanted subscription financial metrics, you kind of had to spin it up yourself. And most of the time, MRR, like even just calculating monthly recurring revenue, was, it's really difficult, even if you use like the billing data. A lot of people don't realize that. Now, the reason they don't realize that is because they just kind of assume it's easy and that'll come up in a second because it actually is a double-edged sword. So we were like, oh, we're going to build this product and it's going to be amazing. And you're going to plug in Stripe or Zora or whatever you're using, and you're going to get all these subscription financial metrics. And we thought we were going to charge for it. The problem was, is we discovered by doing our own pricing research, ironically, and then also um, by kind of doing customer development that like people want the number. They don't realize how much work it takes to get the number. And because they don't realize that, they're not really willing to pay a lot for turnkey analytics. They're just not. And we noticed that when you looked at a small company, like a startup versus like a public company, the delta in willingness to pay was, was not over 10X. And when you're looking at your pricing and your willingness to pay, you typically want more than 10X between your largest customer or potential customer and your smallest because that's how you get expansion revenue. Is like as those companies grow or consume more, almost all of a sudden, like their willingness to pay increases. Well, we didn't have that. We had known by doing the pricing for a number of other kind of analytics or BI products that retention is normally terrible. And this is why all these analytics products want to go up market. They all start by like democratizing whatever across this certain customer base. And then they're like, nope, that's hard. We're gonna to have to get enterprise sales and go up market. And so we looked at that, we decided we either have to go up market, which we didn't really know how to do at the time, two, we needed to just give up. Or there was this extra thesis that was brewing around freemium because every single time we started getting a new account on ProfitWell, even in those early days, some of our algorithms would get incrementally better because we just had more data that was coming in. So a lot of people think that we had this like word of mouth network effect, which we definitely did for both our brand and getting new users. But the biggest thing that we had is we had like every single time we'd get new, new customers, there would just be a lot more data. And that data really helped propel things. So, yeah, it was a very conscious effort. It was one of those efforts that I think, if we knew how hard it was to get accurate metrics, I don't know if we would have done it. I, that would have been a mistake, but we would have been you know scared to do it. And then I think we should have raised money when we knew we were going to do a freemium product because we were bootstrapped the entire time from start to exit. And I think that we should have raised money then because it would have probably cut a couple of years off of our life cycle. Uh, because it's really hard. Freemium is like a premium ebook. That's how you have to think about it. It opens up the top of the funnel, um, which is great, but you got to make sure that you're doing it really quickly and then obviously capitalizing off of those free users as well.
0: Yeah. It's interesting regarding Freemium when it comes to metrics analytics. I was talking to the founder and CEO of Chartmogul. I know they're different than ProfitWell, but Nick Franklin was sharing of his 2,500 SaaS companies are using their metrics and reporting dashboarding technology, yep. 50% are using their freemium product. And what he said where he was interested, I thought initially that as companies grew from 10K MR to 50K MR, 100K, they'd go to the paid product because a lot of them would just implement us for three to six months before a financing around to be able yep. to show their metrics. And then they, if they were on the paid for one, they just shut it off.
1: Yeah, that's and that's, what, that's the thing is like, We'll get that type of episodic usage of well. And then the beauty of Freemium, I used to hate Freemium because I was a pricing guy and I was like, oh, we should charge for things. But I think the thing is, is Freemium is like that middle of the funnel pool we were talking about. It's very similar to like episodic media content. Like so much of sales these days is timing because you want the onus of the decision to be on the buyer because you don't want this like artificial sales process And then all of a sudden the person isn't ready to buy. And then they get put in these close loss campaigns that kind of sort of work, but normally aren't optimized. And you also don't want this artificial trial where all of a sudden it pushes the person. You want the ability to kind of have a really great experience to hold on and nurture that customer every single month. And this is why freemium is an acquisition strategy. It's not part of your revenue model. It's not part of your pricing. You want to think about it like that premium ebook, like I mentioned. And so we would notice... You know, and, and this is why I think this metrics product in hindsight is the perfect freemium product because we would get people who would feel bad because they weren't paying us and they were raising $100 a hundred million dollar round based off using our product and using us in all of their diligence, right? But that's exactly what I want them to think. I want them to feel bad, not too much. but I want them to feel like as soon as I call them or as soon as I send them an email and say, hey, we have this product that we want you to buy, they're like, yeah, of course, I'll take a sales call. Of course, I'll take a you know, sales call and, and consider it, right? So I think, yeah, I think it's really hard with metrics and analytics products. Um, and you need to connect either to selling tangential products, which is what we did. We can show you your pricing is bad or your churn is bad. And we have products that solve that. Or you need to be in a niche and connected to a workflow. If you're connected to a workflow, you're fine because you get used more than once a month or once every three to six months. Um, when you're not connected to a workflow, you you end up in that no man's land where you're not used enough to truly be valuable and you're not like critical um, as much as you should be.
0: Yeah, that's really insightful. I could talk to you for hours just about this, but I'm going to circle back to the brand media asset that you company you built with the side of well. And the question is, because a lot of people are saying, okay, Even when I invest a lot in organic social, my CFO is asking, what's the return? What's the return? So when you invest in all these media assets, how did you really get the right signals and metrics that said, this is working? Is it more inbound from your target ICP? Is it shorter cycle time? How did you know it was working, Patrick?
1: Yeah, it's actually really hard because I mean, all marketing attribution is unfortunately a lot more difficult than we we'd like to think it is, right? Perfection is is one of those things that's really tough. I mean, you can get there over time, but it's it's not like a quarter project. It's like incrementally getting better every single quarter for a long time. So for us, it started off very anecdotally because all of a sudden our engagement increased like 10x. Oh, it felt like overnight. Like I would go to a conference and I would do a speaking slot and I would be like, hey, you know, who here has heard of Price intelligently or ProfitWell? And before doing a lot of content, like we were writing, this, we were publishing the same type of content. We just didn't have video or didn't have audio to supplement. And, you know, you'd get like 10% of the audience to kind of raise the hand. As soon as we started doing content in a video and audio way, all of a sudden, all the hands would go up. Because the thing that I didn't realize, and I, I kind of was too, too like soapbox for, was that... So people just—they want the content. They just don't want to read it, and we can like be like, "Oh, you should read it you know blah blah blah. It's valuable." But it's like, or just creative video. Like, right? like just the first piece of the content. It was just me being like, "This is what's in this blog post," and doing it in a somewhat charismatic way. But like that was that was kind of it. And so I think that that started us anecdotally. And then what we started to see was, you know, there was a black box in the middle but we saw kind of like CAC on one end and LTV on the other end. And we were able to see like, how much of that was at least influenced by content and just using, you know, things like HubSpot and stuff like that. And then over time, we started to kind of develop a model, right? We were able to start kind of tagging customers where we knew their first touch was, you know, through a piece of content or their last touch or how much content they looked at. And then that model allowed us to kind of look at like, okay, this makes sense, this doesn't make sense, or this is working or this isn't working. I'll be frank, like we didn't get probably that much more sophisticated than that because we kind of knew the beginning and the end, we, we saw the numbers and knew it was working. So, and we weren't really worried about given that the cost was actually a lot less than I thought it was going to be. We weren't worried about like, let's squeeze another 5% or 10% out of this because our biggest like hurdle was just more. our our biggest hurdle was like we just need more of this content it wasn't like oh we need to reduce the cost by five ten percent and so yeah we just kept kept going from there
0: okay I'm going to double double click on this one it's the last question because as the founder and CEO you can make those decisions and say we didn't get that much more sophisticated with the ROI you know metrics or attribution on the brand media investments but if you were talking to uh A CEO out there of a 10 million to 20 million ARR company or the CMO, and they really want to follow kind of your lead and do some of the things you've done. How do they justify it? How do they justify that even $100,000 or $250,000 investment for 2023 to start their brand media journey?
1: Yeah, I think the best way is to kind of chunk it down. And when I think of chunking things down like this, what I tend to tell people is, Okay. You're going to have a certain amount of budget for writing resources, like a, a writer, a content writer. Take one of those headcounts and just hire a video producer and tell that person, start taking important blog posts or important ebooks or whatever it is, and just convert them to video as well and start using that in your content. Each product launch, have a video. Each like ebook launch, have a video. Just start there, and I would focus on shipping. Like, not like let's work on something for three months. Let's just do smaller stuff so we get something out once every two weeks, then once every week, and then once we start to get good or start to get better, then we'll take a step back and try to do something bigger that might take a month to kind of work on. Most people they try to be perfect, and really it's like just just lower the stakes. Like convert a blog post that's important to a video, and send the video when you send the written, and just embed the video on top of the blog post. That's the type of stuff that it tends to start with. And I think when you kind of think of it that way, and then kind of a webinar piece that I told you, you can start to get over that hurdle a little bit. And the way you kind of think about ROI is, if we were selling a product that was 30 bucks a month, I don't know if this is the best strategy. Like, I think it's a harder thing to start with, right? But our products, you know, we're selling B2B SaaS software. Like our, our LTVs were plenty big enough. So we looked at it and we're like, Well, we sell two customers based off of our video this year that pays for itself, right? And obviously we want more than that, but it's just one of those things where you just have to chunk it down a little bit. And I think too many people kind of focus on like, let's put an exact revenue figure and it it, it messes up even when you're a hundred million dollar company, these types of things, like a lot of those projections, unless you're going to spend a ton of time on forecasting and use tools, you know, like some of the ones that we mentioned or, or, Obviously, you guys as well. Unless you're going to use tools like that, you're going to give yourself a false sense of security, and then all of a sudden, it's going to be like, "Oh yeah, the 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 forecast was completely wrong." The minute we, you know, the minute we published it.
0: So we're going to have probably three to five thousand people hear this podcast over the next thirty days. What didn't I ask you, or is there any advice or cautions that you'd give anybody who's thinking about going down this path? Did you learn something like, "Oh, don't
1: do this"? I would say get your house in order. This is like flashy, like the media stuff's become flashy since HubSpot bought the hustle um, and some other stuff have happened. I would say, make sure your traditional demand gen is in order before you jump into something like this. So if your BDR teams are not replicating and not getting better and stuff like that, and your basic, because even though you shouldn't just copy and paste, like in the world of SaaS, copying and pasting inside sales is the smartest thing you can do, right? Now, is it this type of inside sales or that type of inside sales? That's dependent on your, your vertical and that's dependent on your product. But I think a really, really big thing to kind of think about is making sure that river of leads is taken care of before you're building those pools of leads with like freemium and stuff like this. Like I don't even recommend freemium until you really have nailed You know how to gather a lead. You know how to convert that lead to an opportunity. You know how to convert that opportunity to a customer that is retained. Once you know that, then start thinking about this stuff. Because there's a lot of, um, I think they're referred to as like ABC marketers. And I don't know if it's ABC or arts and crafts. And it's, it's not a nice term either way. And basically what they'll do is they'll just like look at, okay, oh, I heard this podcast or I read this blog post or I did whatever. And now we're just changing our entire strategy on a dime. You got to take a step back, make sure your house is in order. And then when you're going into this, test it with one headcount. Don't try to hire 10 people because it takes some effort. And, and you know, nine women can't make a baby in a month. You have to kind of let it bake a little bit and kind of develop before you kind of jump all in. So hopefully that's helpful, a little less tactical, but yeah, hopefully that's helpful. I
0: love it. Make sure your current demand gen and marketing house is in order before you chase something shiny and new. And yep. then don't jump in with both feet. Go ahead and do some A-B testing and make sure you're seeing some results, right?
1: Exactly. It's okay. fundamentals.
0: We're going to wrap up with three quick questions. It's going to give our listening audience a chance to get to know Patrick a little bit more outside of just your subject matter expertise around all things, benchmarks, pricing, and building a brand media company inside of a SaaS company. The first is, is there a CEO or company that you think some a must-follow for every Current founder, CEO of a SaaS company.
1: Mm. I'm a big Frank Slootman fan. Um, Snowflake, ServiceNow, Amp It Up was a great book. I think that's one to kind of follow. I think one that I always come back to, um, he's since passed, but Andy Grove and High Output Management, that's the book. I read that book at least twice a year. Um, It used to be four times a year because there's just so many fundamentals in it that are really good to kind of keep internalized. So yeah, I think High Output Management is is a really good one. But like Slootman, I think the thing I like about Slootman is like, he is not afraid to like buck the trend, um, sometimes to his detriment. But when you see everyone going this way, and Frank isn't going that way, it means you maybe should go the way of everyone, but you should think about it, right? And I think that one of the things that was kind of unpopular that he did was when there was like, so much of a swell of some of this, like, I'm gonna just characterize it as like you know the 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 team member manager power balance was off you know because we were in a really top high market it was like oh my god we have to give talent everything Frank was just like no like if you're bad at your job I don't I'm not gonna give you all these perks like right? we're gonna let we're gonna have you out of the company right and you know it was a little controversial because it was mixed in with I think a larger conversation about some important social topics but. I think like he's a guy to kind of watch to see like especially when there's some trends that you feel a little iffy about because he's not afraid to like go against the trend.
0: Frank's two minutes snowflake's a good one. Second question: Is there a tool, not your own, that you recommend every kind of SaaS founder CEO should really use to help manage and scale their business?
1: Yeah, I mean, I know you said not not your own, so I'm, I'm but I will say like. Probable is the tool I want as a SaaS finder. We use it. So that's that's a big thing. Good question. I think I'm a big fan of Notion. I use Notion a lot. I think it's kind of a cop-out answer because I'm not sure if Notion is better or worse than all the other kind of document management products. Um, so I'm basically saying just make sure you use a document management process. But yeah, I, I, I do really, really like Notion. I think the other thing... I tend to like this is a little different, but like I've started using my Apple Watch and not, not like going away with my phone at all. And just being really smart about automating like when Slack is basically turned off and when Slack is available. Doing that and kind of leaving my phone at home most of the time, even when I travel, has been a really, really big unlock in terms of productivity because it took a minute to realize like, Oh, like if I answer that Slack message now or in an hour, nothing changes. But I thought like I have to answer it now, um, and so I think that like that's really helped my productivity. It's not really an app, but it's it's a workflow that I think has worked really well.
0: Okay, that's a great a great recommendation. Last question: a lot of early career people out there who want to be Patrick Campbell, and I'm going to give you a chance to give them the advice. So if you talk to someone who just graduated undergrad and wants to be a B2B SaaS founder in the next five to 10 years, what advice do you give them now?
1: Yeah, I thought this advice was dumb when I was recently out of school. So I don't know if this is something that will get through someone. But I think finding a company, like being a go-getter, taking a ton of initiative, being willing to basically, you know work your butt off including working more than 40 hours a week at a company with a second time or further founder third time fourth time founder and the company is less than 20 people that's what you should focus on finding like take the job don't worry about the comp like make it sure you can live but don't be like i need to maximize my comp i need to maximize xyz I wish I would have done that. I wasn't going to get into business. This wasn't like my goal was to ever get into business. I, my background isn't in it, but I wish I would have done that after I left Google because I think that that would have accelerated my career in a way. Like it, it all turned out. Don't worry. But I like, think I think it would have accelerated my career. And I think that that's I've looked at the the kids out of school, for lack of a better phrase, that we've hired, and we have some that within five years are directors of product at. A billion dollar plus company. We have, they're leading major parts of engineering and they didn't even start as engineering folks. So it's like, if you find that most of the time, if you're a go getter, you will get more out of it than you're putting in because you're putting in so much. And I would not go to Google. I would not go to like a big company because you're not going to learn anything about building a business. You're going to learn how to like manage and communication manage. If you want to like, go through a really good sales program, like a sales training. That's where you're going to get the best sales training. But if you want to be a founder, go work as close to a founding of a company as you can. And then you don't really have a lot to add except just sheer hustle. So just be expected to figure stuff out and be uncomfortable and work a lot. That's the best training that you're going to get.
0: That's great advice, but you said something very important. Find a company that's led by a founder, CEO, or other executives who have had success. A couple times, because there yeah. you're really going to be able to leverage their ability to do pattern recognition, et cetera, that turn into success, right
1: yeah, and it's not i mean it's it's like they don't have they they don't have to have had an exit like or or a huge exit, I should say now I'm thinking about like what if I started a new company? I'm going to be so much faster in so many different ways, like same speed in other ways, you know for better or for worse, but like I think the thing is, is like, I have so much more to give right now, a person with young talent than I did the first year of starting the company, because I didn't know what we were doing. I didn't know and even that second company, I won't know what we're doing, but I at least know how to, I will know how to approach the problem. And so, yeah, I think go, go work for someone who's had a company before. Even if it failed, I think that's, that's okay. Because if they've had like four or five years experience, even with a failure, they're going to go much quicker and be able to give you a lot more knowledge to speed yourself up. Um, and someone who hasn't done it before.
0: Great advice. Okay, for that very small segment of my listening audience who doesn't know how to listen to Patrick Campbell or find you, where should they come and follow you, Patrick?
1: Yeah, I'm Paticus on Twitter. It was a childhood nickname, P-A-T-T-I-C-U-S. Um, hit me up at pc.patakus.com if you want to chat directly. I do not check LinkedIn messages yet. I'm working on figuring out that cesspool of an inbox, but uh I'm not quite there. So if you're in Europe or outside the US, I should say and use LinkedIn a lot, just email me because I know not all of you are on Twitter. But uh yeah, appreciate the time, man. This was I felt very introspective. So hopefully this was good content for everybody.
0: Patrick Campbell, founder, CEO of ProfitWell, now part of Paddle. Thank you so much for being our guest. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. And to our listening audience, if you're enjoying our guests like Patrick Campbell and the quality of the content that we're discussing with these amazingly successful entrepreneurs, it would mean the world to us to go ahead and subscribe to Metrics to Measure Up podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Give us that five-star rating. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit RevOpsquared.com.